Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, welcome back to The Commons. I'm your host, Brian Phillips. We're here for another conversation on school life and leadership. And today I'm joined by Angelina Stanford, who if you are familiar with the Cersei world at all, Angelina needs no introduction. But Angelina, thank you for joining us. Thank you for that non-introduction, Brian. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> People are now Googling me. Who is this right. person? <laughs> I am the woman who needs no introduction. That's, That's going to be on my business cards now. Yes, Stanford with an S, right? Yes, um, yes. No, uh, Angelina, of course, is uh, a frequent co-host on uh, the Close Reads podcast, a frequent speaker uh, at Cersei conferences and and other conferences, and um, well sought after, a wonderful literature teacher. You taught for the Cersei Academy, and also do your own classes. You can find out more about those classes where uh, at my aptly named website, AngelinaStanford dot com. Uh, Which, registration is opening very, very soon. So, all right, yeah, a website that apparently people are going to be googling to find out more <laughs> of who you are. Um, but Angelina, you've you've been on the podcast, uh, the Commons podcast before, um, and I believe a at least talking about some similar topics. But uh, a few weeks ago, I I taught a Cersei literature webinar entitled "The Rise of King Arthur." We we're starting this kind of new block of webinars on the King Arthur stories. And we covered how the Arthurian legends combined uh, history and legend. And we specifically discussed uh, the prophecies of Merlin, the sword in the stone and a few other things. Well, several days after the webinar, I received an email from one of the attendees who had some great questions, um, particularly about how to address the magic of Merlin with young children. Uh, I don't know how old her children are, but I got the impression that she's trying to introduce them to these stories and, and figuring out how to do it appropriately. So she said that she's concerned about um, how to address the issue of witchcraft and sorcery, particularly given the warnings in scripture um, about such things. And, and of course, that's, that's certainly something to be aware of. Uh, it was one of the reasons Saul was rejected as the king of Israel, and there are many, many warnings in scripture about it. So I wanted to take the time uh, to reply to some of her questions and further explore this topic, since she's certainly not the only one trying to navigate those waters. Uh, it's a real pedagogical and uh, curricular kind of issue for, for a number of teachers and homeschooling parents. And I know, Angelina, you've 
had this conversation with many parents before, right? Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah. So let's start the discussion um, a bit broader than Merlin and King Arthur. Um, that's also why you're joining us because this is this is your time period, right? You you love these these stories in this time. Um, so the questions posed by this this homeschooling mom um, seem closely related to a more frequent question. She's being very specific, but there's a more frequent question that that parents and teachers have about our students reading pagan literature. And you teach a lot of pagan literature, right? So what would be your response to that? Okay, this, this is one of these huge topics. I mean, we could easily spend the whole hour just talking about this. So I'll try to, I'll try to nutshell it a bit. But um, The Reader's Digest. The Reader's, or... yeah. You know, I'm so good at that, right? <laughs> the non-wordy answer. Yeah, that's what I'm known for. Um, the, my first response is always to affirm the desire of parents to only put good things in front of their children. But, you know, that's always my first response. Um, obviously, being given the responsibility by God to care for children and nurture their souls. Anytime somebody's taking that seriously, I'm going to affirm that. And so I can understand the intense fear uh, that comes with, what if I, what if I put something bad in front of their eyes? Mm -hmm. Um, so I think it's important to make sure we have the right categories in, in our, in our minds. So when I approach the issue of quote unquote pagan literature, I, well, I raise the question of what is pagan literature? What, what does it mean that something is pagan? If you, does it mean that it's written by a pagan author? Does it mean that it has a pagan message? We start to kind of take that apart. What does it mean? And, and the first thing it means, obviously, is that it's written by someone who does not claim to be a Christian. And the use of the word pagan generally refers to pre-Christ time period. We don't, we don't typically call a, a, a modern non-believer a pagan. Um, we have terms like secular and things like that, but pagan pretty much means you're talking about ancient literature uh, outside of a Christian culture. Um, right. So I think it's helpful to take uh, a historic approach about, about this. Um, the, the early Christians dealt with this in a very intimately intimate way because Christianity was born in the Roman empire. And so there they were, these stories, <laughs> these authors, uh, that universe, they were, they were in it and they were trying to sort through how to make sense of it. Um, where they came down on it was, um, and I mean, this is from Justin Martyr on and on and on the, the church fought St. Basil. All of them are wrestling with what do we do with this pagan heritage mm -hmm. uh, of literature? If you ever read this stuff, they, they would call it the poets because um, the mythology was written in poetry. So uh, the two categories they had were the pagan philosophers and the pagan poets. Um, but when they talk about a defensive poetry, they're talking about mythology. They're not talking about lyric poetry. Um, so they're talking about the epics and, and mythology. Um, for them... They took the view that God's reality is reality, and it's stamped on the heart of every man who is made in the image of God. And therefore, any true story is a reflection of the true reality that comes from God. And they acknowledged that there was a, well, I was going to say they acknowledged that the authors were not aware of this, but actually in some cases, Justin Martyr thinks they were aware. Uh, he, he makes the case, as among many others, that Plato very much knew of the work of Moses and was deliberately copying Moses's teachings in his work, just not attributing it to Moses. Um, Homer was writing at the same time of Isaiah, and you see a great deal of the same imagery that Isaiah uses. One of the things I say in my right. ancients class is we pull up a map, and 
I show them that Israel is right next to Greece. <laughs> there it is. I said, well, Who knew? I said, yeah. And it's at the same time. And I said, you know, right. what are the chances these guys don't know about it? What's, what's the chances that an educated man by Plato has no idea what's going on on the other side of the Mediterranean? And and it's like their their minds just explode. And they say, I, I've never thought of it like that before. And I, and I grew up doing the same thing. Right? You, you kind of put yeah. Israel in a little block. Like it's it's in this, this it's in this vacuum all by itself. It knows nothing and no one knows nothing of it. No, it's all it's all happening at the same time. Right. Um, but the greater argument that the, the church fathers make is that um, so many of these poets are presenting Christian truth without realizing that they are. Uh, and Virgil, for example, uh, is is one that the church fathers really <laughs> take seriously. They called him a pre-Christian saint. Um, so, okay. uh, the, and, and of course, we know a lot of scholarly work has been done in this area. We know that the the early Christians, the monks, preserved pagan literature. The reason that we still have these things in existence is because Christian monks collected them and protected them with their own lives. <laughs> As I always confess rather shamefully to my students, I love Homer and Virgil. I'm just not sure if the Viking horde showed up <laughs> that I would be willing right. to die for this, right? I'd probably be like, and here you go. I'm pretty sure I could just remember how the Indian goes. Help yourself. Yeah, um, yeah. I, th I think you're also being very generous in saying, I'm not sure I would die for them. <laughs> I'm know, pretty I, sure I... I'm sure I wouldn't. I'm sure um, I wouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, unless I was just uh, caught up in the frenzy of a moment. But no, I'm yeah, I'm quite yeah, certain I yeah. would. You know, I'd run for the hills. <laughs> but Christians were martyred for this stuff, which means that they did not see this as any way antithetical to their Christianity. They saw mm -hmm. these things as very much part of the Christian heritage. Um, and, and if you look at the way, and I, I'll try not to go too off topic here, but if you look at the development of medieval literature, which is the Christian literary tradition, um, they didn't draw a line between those guys back then and now what we're doing. They they grew out of that very specific. Let's so talk about King Arthur. You know, Sir Gawain starts with, you know, a genealogy connecting the history of England all the way back to Troy, right? I mean, right. They, they see right. themselves very deliberately coming out of this same tradition. So for them, it's not pagan literature versus Christian literature. It, for them, it's all the Christian heritage. All of it is our Christian heritage. All of it has been redeemed. All of it has been made in full in Christ. So, you know, Lewis and, and his guys, the Inklings, you know, they like to say uh, that, that the pagans raised the questions that could only be answered in Christ. Um, I have found that to be very true in, in my reading. So for the early Christians, the pagan literature was part of the whole Christian heritage and not something to be afraid of, but but something that can be uh, learned from and beneficial to, to, the, to the Christian walk. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess to, to paint kind of a caricature of what you're saying, or uh, is that essentially this literature, what we call pagan literature, raised questions that should point people to Christ. Um, so they could only be answered in Christ, right? Yes. Um, now, I think where a lot of people get hung up is with specific content. And, and we tend to do that. that uh, I'm just going to say this without explaining it. I, I do think that this is kind of a modern tendency of ours um, and, and perhaps perhaps is kind of a, a tentacle of moralism, but, but we tend to look at specific content as the determining factor rather than an overall picture, right? Uh, when we, mm -hmm. um, and, and it's not that we shouldn't consider those things, but whenever we run into 
something troubling or what we find troubling in a book, we wonder, especially as parents and as as teachers in schools, you know, we realize that we're functioning un, you know, under the in loco parentis in the in the place or under the authority of parents in teaching their children. So when we get specifically to issues like magic, uh, which is what's kind of driving this conversation, a lot of a lot of people get tripped up there. So I'm sure you've had this question posed to you before because of the kind of literature you teach. But but what do you say to a parent or a teacher who says, who asks, should I let my students read books with magic in them? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, this this is still an issue with with even modern series like Harry Potter. But you know, we're looking at it from older stories. What's what's your response when? someone asks you that, should I let my students read these kinds of books? This question leads into one of my great passions, which is just how do you read any book? Um, And so I always have two guiding principles when I'm leading students through books. One is you must enter the text on its own terms. That means a lot of things, but one of the things it means is letting the form tell you how to read it. So, so for example, we read a fairy tale very differently than we would read, say, Charles Dickens, right? Uh, We'd have a different set of expectations about the universe we would find in that kind of story. Mm -hmm. Um, The second thing, which is very closely related, is trying as much as we're able to enter a work via the imagination of its original audience. And... What I mean by that is we are carrying around all of these assumptions about reality as moderns that we don't realize we're carrying around. And when we bring those into a book, it's a huge stumbling block for us. One of the reasons why we will pick up a medieval book and read it and think, well, this is weird. This feels weird, right? It's because we're the weird ones. (laughs) We're the weird ones and we don't know that we are. And this is the same reason why we read some stories in the Bible and we're just like, that's weird. What is those are right, weird people. Right. What, what are that doesn't make any sense, but it's it's us that don't make sense. Um, our assumptions about reality would be so far into Peter and Paul and David and Moses. <laughs> They're just like someone, mm-hmm. someone needs to help them. Um, so when it comes to magic, um, we are looking at ma- well, first of all, magic's not even a word you'd find in an ancient or medieval text, right? That's a modern category, <laughs> magic. And and what do we mean when we say magic? What are our categories? So one of the categories that we carry around as moderns is the idea that reality is what can be experienced through the senses, what we can taste, what we can touch and see. Um, the problem with that definition of reality is that has now that now we have defined God as not real <laughs> because. We cannot experience him through the senses. So moderns have categories of what is real and then everything else is weird superstition. So they have created the category of magic and called that weird superstition. Um, But they also put the category of God in there. Um, So, so then what, so then what is magic? Okay. So, so one of the things that um, surprises people when they begin to study the middle ages and the Renaissance is that there, there are not these neat categories of what is science and what is superstition that we have. So for example, um, there is no distinction in the mind of a medieval or Renaissance man between astronomy and astrology. There is no distinction for a medieval and Renaissance man between philosophy and alchemy. (laughs) There is no distinction in their mind between science and what we would consider 
magic because for them, it's all an attempt to understand the natural world and what it can do. Um, now, that's not necessarily how magic is being portrayed in books. Actually, ma- magic is being portrayed very metaphorically. Um, and, but, right. and we'll get to that in a second. But, but let's say you're reading Shakespeare. And why is he talking about the movements of the planets? And what is that all about? Well, it, it's because um, for them, there was no difference between astrology and astronomy. Um, now, I want to explore that. But first, I want to make sure I'm defining my terms correctly. Because even to say astronomy versus astrology is to carry a whole bunch of modern assumptions about what astrology is. We think of astrology as reading your horoscope. Right. Um, and that <laughs> is actually more correctly divination. Um, that is where you are trying to look at the stars to tell you how to act, right? So, oh, well, mm-hmm. you know, my stars are not in proper alignment. I better not sign that, you know, that book deal today. Or I better not buy a house because the stars are not aligned. Um, the church fathers were extremely consistent in condemning divination. Um, the, so while they all believed that we live in a meaningful universe and the alignment of the planet and the stars is just as meaningful as anyone else, you cannot divine the future by looking at the stars. You cannot, uh, and, and the stars are not fate. So the church fathers all upheld man's free will as being God's greatest gift. And the stars cannot fate you. You don't, it doesn't work like that. So mm-hmm. when I say Shakespeare is comfortable with astrology, I do not mean that he is using it to divine the future, which is clearly forbidden. Rather, when you talk about a medieval and Renaissance man, not making the difference between astronomy and astrology, It means he studied the stars, he looked at their movements, and he tried to find meaning in that. So, for example, um, actually, we see this in the Bible, but we're so familiar with the Bible stories, we don't think about it, right? The star of Bethlehem, (laughs) Um, um, the fact that there's an eclipse when Jesus dies, it was long understood in the ancient and medieval world that um, auspicious occasions could be seen in the stars, Right. A king is born, obviously there's going to be a super bright star. Everybody knows this. A king dies, there's going to be an eclipse. Shakespeare does the same thing in his plays. But we're so close to it, we don't, we don't realize that's actually astrology, right? That a star has foretold the birth of Christ. But it's right there. It's in our Christmas story. And of course, Epiphany, um, you and I were just talking about this, uh, it's the three magi, which we like to call the three wise men, but magi is what they are, mm-hmm. M-A-G-I, magic, magicians. They were wizards. They were astrologers who studied the stars, and that's why they saw the star of Bethlehem and thought, we should probably follow that. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but again, that's not divination. That's not saying, oh, well, the stars are aligned, so now I can't walk out of my house. That's just saying the movement of the stars and the planets are meaningful, and we can mm-hmm. learn something from that. So um, they, they didn't see this at, at odds with a Christian understanding of reality. Dante talks about that it's the divine love of God that moves the planets and stars. Um, others, I think Aquinas takes this position, it's angelic beings are behind the movement of the stars and the planets. So if the stars and the planets are meaningful, it's because God has put the meaning in that. Lewis right. picks up this idea in the Space Trilogy. His planets all have angelic beings associated with it, and, and it is meaningful. So when you read Shakespeare and he talks about someone's born under the sign of Saturn, well, that means he's going to be grumpy and melancholy. 
and Saturnine, right? Or someone's born under the sign of Venus means that character is going to be all about love. And, and that was not something that they considered to be at odds with their Christian understanding at all. So if you read a story in which someone appears to be practicing astrology, it just means that they're looking, that they think that the, or, the universe is ordered and meaningful and they see that meaning everywhere, but that's not the same thing as divination, which is what is clearly forbidden in scripture. Mm-hmm. You don't, you, you know, you, um, well, some of the characters are doing divination, but they're bad right, guys. Right. They're bad guys. Right. And that's, that's a very important distinction. Um, even in the King Arthur stories, there is a distinction between good magic and evil magic and, and good uses and bad uses. And I, I think that pretty well stands for uh, at least in all the stories that are coming to mind. But I, I, I want history teacher Brian to jump in here for a second to, uh, to throw in another, I want to throw in another story um, that is connected with all this because it wasn't just in the medieval stories and literature, but it was in their common understanding. So Shakespeare uh, and Dante, in their references to the movements of the stars and the planets as having meaning were were fully consistent with the way that the medieval mindset worked. Um, in particular, one, one story that um, always enjoyed telling as a history teacher was um, when William the Conqueror came across the channel from uh, basically Normandy, came across the channel to uh, claim the throne from Harold. When Harold was crowned, a comet appeared. Mm-hmm. So this burning ball of fire <laughs> comes scorching through the sky and they, uh, the nobles uh, and all of those gathered for the coronation saw it and knew something was wrong. Like they had just crowned their new king and something was really wrong. They did not know at the time, they would find out very soon, that William the Conqueror had just shown up with his entire army on the coast of Britain to take the crown from Harold. And of course, William the Conqueror obviously won from Harold. Do you remember his nickname? I of love William? this story. It, no, of Harold. Um, Harold the Unfortunate. Oh. Who, who, <laughs> I was going to say, I don't know that I could say William's nickname on the air, Brian. You're setting me up. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Yeah. So um, William, William the Conqueror claimed the throne from Harold that we now call the unfortunate because he was king for a very short amount of time. But that comet was, was meaningful to them. Like they, they knew something bad was going to happen. And it is, it is part of the bio tapestry. You can see that yes. scene with the comet flying by overhead um, so it's not just in their, it was in their mindsets, not Ab- just in absolutely. their stories. Absolutely. They looked to the heavens and and saw meaning. So I, that's a really good distinction. Thank you for bringing that up. That was, that's a great story. I, I love that story. And, you know, so we would look at that, the comment in the Bayou Tabish and say, what quaint little superstitious people, right? We know reality better, but to the medieval, right. we would be the sad people that we do not see a meaningful universe. Universe, that we do yeah. not see that everything in, in, in the world, in the whole creation, is infused with a meaning. And so what does it mean that we live in a God-ordained and God-sustained universe? Why wouldn't everything have meaning? Why would this yeah. movement of the stars be random? 
You know? well, and- why, why, why would they be random? If, if God has created an ordered universe, everything has meaning. Well, and let's go one step further where we actually live. We, we would, it, you know, if we see a comet coming through the sky, not only do we not attribute meaning to it, but we couldn't attribute meaning to it because we have so much artificial light around our mm. lives that we wouldn't even be able to see it or take the time to look up, right? And then we would read stories of people who would look to comets and find meaning and go, oh, what superstitious, silly little people. They don't understand reality. What's on TV? Um, right, right. Now, <laughs> that's really sad that it's where we are. We don't, we've reached a point to where we, we don't understand the medieval mindset because we don't even look up anymore. Um, right. When it comes well, and for to, us, right, um, space is empty, yeah. <laughs> for the medieval, yeah. it was full of life and meaning. They they would think we're the sad people because we think we live in an empty universe. Right. But for right. them, nothing was empty. Everything was meaningful. And it made perfect sense to them that auspicious occasions, either for good or bad, auspicious occasions would disrupt the natural order somewhat. Something weird would happen, an eclipse, a comet, an earthquake. Um and this happens over and over in scripture. And, you know, and, and again, we make these distinctions between what the saints are doing in scripture versus what the pagans are doing. But, you know, when Moses goes to Pharaoh, they say, oh, he's practicing magic. We have magicians right. who can do this too. And right. Moses doesn't stop and say, wait a minute, this isn't magic. This is a miracle and you need to reconsider your categories. No, his, he just says, my magic is better than your magic. And his snake swallows their snakes in an right. awesome twist. I mean, that's such a fantastic story. That's the best, isn't it? Right. That's such a- well, my magic <laughs> is better than your magic, right? It, you know, kind of a C.S. Lewis, I have the deeper magic and I win. Um, mm. but, 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 but right. Right. So, so they're looking at a whole view of reality that is so foreign to us that we are suspicious of it. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it's a reality that is in no way at odds with Christianity. And, and again, that's not to say there are not bad uses of sure. quote unquote magic. I mean, uh, and yeah. see, one of the things that fascinates me about what Lewis and Tolkien did, um, they both had a real medieval sensibility about magic. And the way, so they both have magic in their stories. And yet, for them, the real evil is technology because they, they see, okay, so for them, the, the forbidden magic is the magic that attempts to artificially control the natural realm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, will, I will cause an eclipse, right? That would be evil magic because that's attempting to have some control over the natural realm. For them, the impulse to have control over the natural world the impulse, how it, how it expresses itself in the modern world is through technology. So for both of them, technology was the, the thing we should be very careful about having dealings with, <laughs> uh, not medieval magic. Hmm. Well, we're in trouble, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, we, we're not even identifying the problem correctly, are we? Uh, if, if Lewis and Tolkien are right, but um, so, so let's come back to this, the, okay, okay. Uh, the role that magic plays mm-hmm. in fairy tales and legends. So, um, fairy tales and legends almost always, if not always contain magical elements. So in the conclusion of the King Arthur webinar I did, I, I offered that one of the reasons why the Arthurian legends are so appealing and so enduring to us, even though they did see the world so differently, 
is one reason we still love them is that they portray a world where the magical and spiritual are blended into life. Mm-hmm. Um, they, I want to be careful how I say this, but they, they were almost expecting for their lives to be penetrated, if you will, by the spiritual and magical, you know, it was a part of who they were and a part of the way that they lived and the part of the way that they looked at the world. And you mentioned earlier that, that magic plays a particular role in fairy tales and legends. So talk to us about that. What, what role does magic play in fairy tales and legends? One of the reasons, I mean, I'm completely agreeing with you. One of the reasons I think these stories speak so strongly to us and why, for example, we're seeing so much fantasy in our in our culture right now. Like those are the most popular stories in movies, right? These fantasy things. Um, is I think they offer this amazing antidote to modernity. We don't realize the effect that it has on our soul when we accept the assumption that the only thing that is real is, is what can be experienced with the senses. We're cutting ourselves off from our own souls almost when we do that. Um, so what magic does in, in these older stories is magic is an attempt to show that um, we live in a world in which everything is meaningful and the meaning cannot easily be understood by us. It's mysterious and it's transcendent and we cannot understand it. Now, that is something that's very uncomfortable for a modern. I once had a conversation with a, you know, a self-identified secularist who got angry, like visibly angry, like ready to have a fist fight with me because I said, there are some things we'll never know. No, no, like that's a, that's a basic assumption of modernity. We will know everything, right? Um, mm. But of course, this is not true. <laughs> if we're a Christian, we know that this is not true. Even when we die and become as fully human as we can be in the resurrection, we're not going to be God. We're not going to know everything. Right. There's going to be things we don't understand. And for a Christian, we should be not, like you said, we should be expecting the mysterious, the unexplainable, the weird. And when you read scripture, looking for the weird, it's everywhere. Scripture is weird. <laughs> there's a lot of weird stuff in there, right? Mm-hmm. There's people raising the dead. <laughs> you know, and, and everybody's just like, oh, no, that child was dead and now they're alive. Okay. And um, there's a lot of weird stuff. So magic mm-hmm. is the attempt to show a meaningful, transcendent, mysterious universe that where so forests are enchanted and you don't know what, you know, what kind of weird white stag is going to show up and I should probably follow that. I wonder where it's going to take me. I don't know what it is, but let's go. There's a lot of King Arthur stuff that's very, I don't know what this is. Let's just go. This right. seems like this might be important, but I don't understand it. Um, a fairyland and, 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 and fairies being behind things. Um, all of this points to a meaningful uh, universe beyond what we can perceive with the senses. And so again, this is a very Christian idea, right? That, that sometimes, sometimes a baby in a manger is the king of the universe, right? Sometimes things are bigger than what you think. So one way to think about this is the way that Lewis and, and, and Tolkien and Sayers and Charles Williams, they were very, very deliberate in, in their approach to this. And, and so this, here they are, post-World War I, if you think about what other people are writing at the time, we've got absurdist literature, we've got intense realism, naturalism, determinism, the lost generation, very, very intense, nitty gritty, we're going to show what's real, using modern terms. The inkling said, oh, no, 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 this is going from bad to worse. <laughs> what we need to do is re-enchant the world. That their de- very deliberate message was we are going to re-enchant the world. So, so Lewis gives us a wardrobe that's actually a gateway into a whole other reality. 
Um, and I think the reason that those books have such staying power is because we desperately need to be reminded of that. And again, that's inherent in our Christian experience. We just don't realize it. So when we go to church, right, we're not really, the scriptures are very plain clear about this. The building is not really the church, right? right? We're not really just walking into a building. On Sunday morning, we are entering the throne of God, mystically, mysteriously, transcendently. We know that we are. We're told that we're right there with God and the angels and the saints, and we're all together because there's something bigger in this room that we're in. There's something bigger happening. And church architecture used to be extremely deliberate in pointing that out, right? right. Um, so I actually just read a fascinating article on the history of glass in churches. This is the kind of weird stuff I read, but it made the point about why they, and from an engineering standpoint, to put glass in a cathedral is extraordinarily difficult. Like for them to have figured that that was amazing. But the reason it was important to them was because a, a window was metaphorically important. It was important to remind everybody that was in church that there's a bigger reality outside, a reality that you can't see, right? We are, we are really in the throne of God. Um, so, so the, the whole idea of you're traipsing around in a medieval story and, you know, behind this waterfall is a whole other fairyland. You open this door and you're in another world. That's an inherently Christian idea that the universe is infused with mysterious transcendent meaning. Uh, everything is more than meets the eye. Everything is a greater reality. Um, and that's so essential to the gospel story. You know, some people looked at Jesus and was like, oh, that guy, that's Joseph's son. Right. And other people looked at Jesus and said, no, 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 don't be fooled. <laughs> That's the God of the universe. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think that's one of the things that medieval stories do so well is, is help us to see the enchantment of everything, that we live in an enchanted universe. Um, that, that's really exciting to me, the idea that, that everything has meaning, even if I don't understand what it means. Right, right. And there's, there's a big difference between what we tend to categorize as, as magic and that we're often as moderns troubled by, I, I think we're missing or, or misdefining our categories here. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. There's, there's a difference between um, the magic in fairy tales and legends and the kind of sorcery that's condemned in scripture and by the church. And as you said, divination where you're trying to predict the future, you're trying to control uh, the future, you're trying to essentially manipulate the, the, the world that God has created for your own means, mm -hmm. you know, for your own ends. What occurred to me when you, you brought up Lewis and, and Tolkien seeing technology as the real threat and how you described true sorcery and divination as trying to control, it seems to me that maybe technology is the real sorcery. Right, maybe tech, maybe our attempts to uh, try to confine and understand and know everything and eliminate mystery from the universe is that's the real evil sorcery and witchcraft that we need to be afraid of now. Mm -hmm. um, so we're we're kind of looking at stories, going, "Oh, it, Merlin did magic things, and I don't understand that, so I'm uncomfortable with it." When in reality, that's what we should be more comfortable with as Christians than, I don't know, some forms of artificial intelligence or something like that. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, we kind of have a running joke and you see this sometimes in, in movies that are set in the Middle Ages, like some somebody from the future goes back to the Middle Ages. We've seen this set up so many times, right? And 
And what does the medieval person always say in that setup when they see an iPhone or something? It's always, what sorcery is this, right? Like that's, that's their suspicion. What right. magic is in that box you're holding in your hand? And we laugh at that. And we think that's so quaint and that's so cute. But there's an actual reality to that. And I'm not anti-technology, um, but I, I definitely think we have to be thoughtful in the way that we approach it. Because um, as, as the longer we live with technology, right, the more voices there are saying, this hasn't been good. <laughs> we are yeah, hurting yeah. ourselves, right? We're, we're hurting our children. We're destroying the imagination. Uh, we're destroying attention spans. We're, we're destroying human relationships. On and on, there are so many voices warning us that this has been a destructive force in our life. <clears throat> but because technology is a modern category that's not in the Bible anywhere condemned, right? We feel safe. We, we don't think about the principle behind what's really being condemned mm-hmm. in, in the scriptures. And um, there's no question that, that sorcery, witchcraft, divination, I mean, attempting to raise the dead um, is, is forbidden. And, and Saul is punished right. for that. And, and when Samuel comes up, he's like, why did you call me? I, I love that response. He's mad about it. <laughs> why would you bring me back? Um, that's not something you're supposed to be doing. You got to let dead people stay dead. Um, but we also see exceptions to this rule, right? We see other people raising the dead repeatedly and it's fine and it's good. And it's, and it's a, it's a gift. It's a miracle. So even calling some, we call the magic Jesus does a miracle and that's okay. Cause we've given it a new category and, and we call, right. uh, and we call, you know, evil magic, magic, um, but we're talking about very fine distinctions and really the distinction is how it's being used. I mean, Jesus does, Jesus turns water into wine. He, I mean, he, I always imagine Jesus has a bit of flair. He's a little David Copperfield flair there, right? Like rubbing mud on the eyes and working up the drama. And then now you can see and spit on my hand and, you know, he's, he's got a flair for that. Um, he didn't actually have to do any of that. Um, and, and we see, um, so many Old Testament examples where the only reason we don't think what the prophets are doing is, is sin is because they are clearly being presented as the good guy in the story. Right. Which is the right. same way we see them in the fairy tales and the legends, the medieval stories. There's good magic and there's bad magic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we define the good magic in scripture as miracles and then for a lot of us, when we get outside of the good magic in scripture, we don't know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're being inconsistent there, <clears throat> at least in reading stories. It's very obvious in the, in the King Arthur stories specifically that Merlin is presented as working good magic. And in fact, that was one of the things that I, I went back to note time and time again, especially after getting the, the email from the attendee with, with her questions, I went through and you see in Geoffrey of Monmouth's uh, The History of the Kings of Britain, uh, Roger Lancelin Green's retellings, uh, Sir Thomas Mallory, all of the Arthurian legends, you see Merlin as being a friend of the church. In, in fact, uh, Geoffrey of Monmouth says in The History of the Kings of Britain, which I regard as just a, a great, fascinating work of history, um, he says that he recorded the prophecies of Merlin at the request of Alexander, the Bishop of Lincoln. Um, mm. And he even says that he is a, a man of greatest religion and wisdom. So the Bishop of Lincoln asked Geoffrey of Monmouth, would you please make sure to include the prophecies of Merlin in your history of the Kings of Britain? This is not 
a story. I mean, this is a book of history that Geoffrey of Monmouth wrote, uh, I believe, in the early 12th century. So even for the bishops then, they're seeing this as a part of their history, a part of the way that they looked at things. So they understood the difference between good bad, good magic and bad magic. Um, but the miracles in scripture really do fit into this discussion. I mean, if, if you read the Bible, um, not even carefully, right? <laughs> if, you, <laughs> if you read the Bible, there's, there's really not any other way to explain many of the things that go on, um, you know, from goodness, really from cover to cover, right? Mm -hmm. As it's nothing less than magical. And so we have to really consider the fact that we're framing our distinctions in a way that can become extremely problematic when it comes to our own view of scripture. Yes. And how many modern people actually will say they don't believe the miracles in the Bible? You know, that's a, that's a yeah. modern thing. People saying, well, I like, I like the teachings of Jesus, but I don't believe in any of the supernatural stuff. Like they, those are very uh, modern distinctions. And in fact, you know, we would all do well to, to try to not read the Bible like a modern and, and to, to, to really see the magic that's in there because it's in there on purpose. It's in yeah. there to teach us something. But again, that's not necessarily the way that magic is, is in a story. Um, it is being, it's, it's, it's fairy tale magic, which, which, is, which is a little bit different. Um, but it's all the, same, all, all the same idea. I mean, we're getting at all of the same things in, in a slightly different way. Um, I love the idea of Merlin as a prophet. And again, it's the kind of thing where we'd be a little uncomfortable. We'd have that gut response. No, he can't be, he can't actually be one of the great Christians. He can't be a Christian prophet. He did magic, but you know, they all, they all did magic. If you define magic as supernatural stuff out of the ordinary. Right. Right. I mean, ax heads floating in water, right. Uh, <laughs> jars of oil that never run out. Uh, <laughs> Fire being called down from heaven. Oh, that's my all-time favorite story. It's fantastic, isn't it? Talk about and, dramatic and, appeal. I mean, Elijah, Elijah, Elijah's such a Merlin figure, you know. Yeah, well, he he really engaged in some fantastic trash talk oh, with, of the, with the prophets there too. Greatest. And and that's really, I'm, I'm glad that we kind of stumbled upon that. That's I don't think we were planning on talking about that story from First Kings. I, I believe it's First Kings chapter seventeen. Um, where Elijah confronts the the prophets of Baal. I'm going to feel really bad. Everyone, I think, knows <laughs> I'm a pastor, and then I'm no, that's, that's why I'm sitting here quiet. I'm just going to defer um, to the expert on the Bible but, here <laughs> instead of Google, which is my temptation. <laughs> right? Yeah. Where's my? It would be great using technology to uh, in a situation like that, right? That's in good this magic, Ryan. That's good magic. It's good. Okay. What sorcery is this? Um, but he. He he confronts the prophets of Baal, right? Who have who claim their own magic, who claim their own supernatural realities, who and so you talk about a confrontation of good magic and evil magic. Absolutely. Right? Um, if you if you want to see that, that's probably one of the the clearer stories that give you that contrast is when Elijah has that confrontation. It's fantastic, but um and, and it certainly plays into this discussion. But let's, um, we really could go on forever here, but let's, let's wrap this around, wrap this up with um, a few, a few tips, I guess, or suggestions for teachers and homeschool 
parents who are navigating through this. So headmasters have to make these decisions sometimes. Teachers have to make these decisions. Homeschooling parents have to make these decisions. Um, as they're sorting through, what do we have our kids read? You know, how do we deal with the magic issue? What, what are some suggestions you might give to them overall in light of this conversation? Oh, that's a, that's a big question. <laughs> um, one of the things I like to remind my students, um, I'm a big believer in trusting the canon. And what I mean by that is we have a collection of stories that Christians over thousands of years have found to be edifying and good. That, that, that's something we can trust. It's a very modern thing that we have this individualism and think I to determine everything for myself. And I'm not saying that that means we're off the hook and don't have discretion. What it means is we don't have to reinvent the wheel, right? That, so I start off with the assumption that, all right, if the great Christians that I trust, uh, you know, we, we trust all of the reformers when they tell us what to read about the Bible, but we don't want to trust them when they say, read these other books. And all of them have. There, there is not a single reformer that was not classically educated and read these stories, read the pagans, read these mm-hmm. books. This was, and, and, and they in no way saw this as antithetical to the, to the other things that they knew. So um, I, I like to approach any book as, okay, people I respect have found some goodness in here. So there must be goodness. I don't have to be afraid of this. I can enter it and I can, and that doesn't mean I'm going to see the goodness right off the bat. Mm-hmm. Right. But it means I don't have to go in, shield up, sword up, looking to, looking to battle a dragon because other people have told me there, there's no dragon here. Uh, so, so that's one of my first guiding principles is I trust the canon. Again, that's not necessarily... No new book owes to that. If there's, if there's some brand new book about magic and you don't want to read that, that, a brand new book does not get the benefit of the doubt. Only time can tell us that. But when we're talking about medieval stories, um, if we don't trust the medievals, we end up creating this weird scenario in which we call it the Christian Middle Ages, but then we think everything they did was ungodly. <laughs> you, can't, you can't have it both ways. You know? yeah. um, either these were Christians or, or they weren't. Um, and, and also they weren't confused. Sometimes we look at them and think, well, they were just confused. They, they, they were confused about the line between what's Christian, not Christian. No, no, they weren't confused at all. They just didn't draw the line in the same place that we draw it. Um, and, and the other thing, and this, this might be a kind of pragmatic thing, but, um, anybody who puts their child in a Christian school or who chooses to homeschool has said I want my child to have a different understanding of reality than the rest of the world. That is the basic assumption of anybody who says, nope, no public school for my child. I want this Christian school or I'm going to homeschool my child because I want the wisdom of the past. I want a different understanding of reality, right? Right. Well, then don't be afraid to do that. (laughs) Don't don't say I want different and then be like, whoa, this is too different. (laughs) No. Um, you and I were talking about this b- before the class started, but my favorite year to teach is the Middle Ages. And my favorite thing that happens is at the end of that year, my students all say, oh, do we have to leave? Please tell me we don't have to leave. Because what happens is the longer they stay immersed in the medieval imagination and the medieval understanding of reality, the more they can see modernity with different eyes. The more they begin to see where the problems are in their own modern understanding of reality. And they begin to see the medievals had a much better understanding of what it means to be human 
than a modern does. And they don't want to go back to the modern way. And of course, this is what every Christian parent wants for their child. They want them to be able to look at the world they live in and say, no, not, not this. This is not for me. And this is not godly. This is not going to help my soul. But the only way you can do that is if you get them out of the modern world, which is almost impossible. Well, it's impossible to do it fully, but books and immersing your child in a book that is radically different from the world they're in, that is going to help them to be able to see their own time as being the foreign time, the weird time, the ungodly time. Yeah. um, In, I I have an edition of uh, St. Athanasius um, on the incarnation and the edition I have has a preface or an introduction written by C.S. Lewis. And at, at first, when you read that introduction, it seems like he's, he's not really introducing the book at all. Right. Um, but it's this fantastic essay on the importance of reading old books. And he talks about that very thing, that the advice that you gave about how by reading old books, it it exposes the the presuppositions and um, preconceived ideas that you have as a modern that you did not even realize you had uh, because they had such a different way of looking at the world than we do. And so he gives, I think that's where he gives that advice, something about mm-hmm. um, if you should read two old books for every new one, if you insist on reading a new one. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And then don't read another new one until you've read two old books in between. Uh, It might have even been three. I don't remember. But um, but his point is that you you don't really even understand the problems with the way you're looking at the world until you see that there is another way of looking at the world. Right. Um, And the best way to rid ourselves of those problematic ideas is by exposing ourselves to better ones and older ones. Absolutely. um, And and so much of what we're saying applies to how to read the Bible too. Like I'm, I'm thinking just now of how the the way we use the, the way we use the word gospel, right? We use the word gospel to mean the true story of how to be saved. (laughs) But the word gospel is an old English word that means God's spell. This, This is the spell that God cast on the universe. That is the way that, that that the that the medieval man looked at all of this stuff, um, and and I bet that there's plenty of Christians who are offended at the idea that mm. God has cast a spell on the universe. But but if you if you understand the way those words are being used, yes, he did, and that's exactly how Lewis portrays it. Right, the deeper magic. Right. Yeah. And, I mean, and, God God spoke the world into existence. I mean, what do you think a spell is? That that is a spell. Yeah, and the, the other sense of the term gospel, uh, good news, right? Mm-hmm. So it was proclaimed from the heavens by singing angels to the shepherds, right? In Luke chapter two. So, and a um, weird star, <laughs> right? Yeah. So um, we really should not should not be um, surprised by uh, God intruding upon the world that he has made, right? He, it's his. Um, so Angelina, thank you so much for joining me, uh, for this podcast. These are really fun questions to talk about. Oh, this was so much fun. I, yeah, I, I, and then this is something I'm still thinking my way through too, as I, as I know you are. 
We should they're never big, stop thinking through these things, definitely. Absolutely. They're big, big questions. Um, and uh, I, I want to thank, I, I won't mention her by name because I don't have permission to, but I want to thank the attendee that's homeschooling mom who took the time to write these questions because, you know, really that's the way that we begin to come to the right conclusions about things is simply by asking. And even though, you know, you and I don't have all the answers, these are things that we're happy to to talk through and think about uh, more deeply so that we can try to help um, other people as they're wrestling through it as well. And so we're all on this same journey, wrestling through a lot of the same issues. And so there's fantastic questions. So thank you to that. Uh, that was a that for, was a great question, and it is extremely. We live in a very difficult age. It is very hard to be a modern and be a Christian. Yeah, it is. It is, and it's very hard to, because of that, for us to try to provide a good classical education to our children and our our students because we didn't really receive it ourselves, right? So we're trying to rid ourselves as teachers of these these modern assumptions while not instilling them in our children. And that is a really tall order. So we don't even realize how far it goes, just like our categories of fiction and nonfiction. Those are not, those are not, as you mentioned so many times about the history books uh, Mm -hmm. of the middle ages, that's not a distinction that they had at all. Fiction, nonfiction, that's new. That's, that's from Dewey. That is a new idea that these are somehow different. Uh, You know, uh, Tolkien always talks, and Lewis too, about how the difference between myth and history is not exactly how we think it is, that that, that there's a lot of overlap there. Um, So even when we think of books as, uh, it kills me actually, that I was taught as a child that fiction meant false and nonfiction meant not false. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's actually not what they mean. Um, Fiction just means a work of the imagination. And of course, as I'm fond of saying, I think fairy tales are truer than true. Uh, So it's not about what's true or false, but that's a very modern way to look at things. And if yeah. you look at books as, well, these are true books and these are false books, then obviously you don't want to give your kid false books. So we would so say, is this, question is the this category. Your very, this your very subtle way of <laughs> saying we need to do another podcast about <laughs> the difference between fiction and nonfiction? Oh, that would be fascinating. All right. Well, we will see about that. So <laughs> I'm already, I'm already intrigued. So yeah, we'll we'll set that one up. I think that's that's a very good topic. Thanks again for joining me. Uh, for Angelina Stanford, I'm Brian Phillips, signing off from the Commons. Until next time, Godspeed. Planning for your next trip. Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.